Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today, and we're in a different studio than we're usually in. We may sound a little different, but we're flexible, and we're with food people. And if you're in food, you've got to be flexible, right? If you're a chef, Joy <laughs> Crump, every day. Um, you got to be flexible. Jeff Grass, uh, you're a serial entrepreneur. You know what this means. And I'm here with my sister, Debbie Shore. Yeah. Um, and we're excited to have this conversation. This is our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. Let me come back and introduce our two guests. Uh, we've got Joy Crump here from, you drove here from Fredericksburg, Virginia I did, today. I by myself, yeah. Thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> we're, we've all been talking about how the ride is a little better, a little easier than usual, unfortunately, because of the government shutdown, which today is, as we're recording, is in its 32nd day and hopefully by the time you hear this it's over but joy is an amazing restaurateur a lot of folks know her from uh television and we'll talk about all of that in a few minutes thanks for being with us joy it's my pleasure thanks for having me and jeff grass who's the chair and ceo of hungry uh which i've also seen referred to jeff as hungry marketplace yes, yes. um what's the what's the best way to describe hungry. it? hungry we go by the brand hungry for hungry okay which is a really innovative idea for connecting office workers to talented chefs and really changing the face of the way the workplace caters food for its employees and Absolutely. it's your fourth company i think we're going to talk about what it means to be a serial entrepreneur uh, so thanks for being with us thanks for having me excited to be here and deb shore welcome back yeah i'm we wondering why we didn't these without you i've missed you oh uh, thank you why didn't we think of hungry bill <laughs> why did we name. not how, think how's of the name just out there right well, the name was just there right nobody's using well, it well our url is try hungry try hungry.com okay website, but, you just uh, go by still, it's brand, a good business yeah. idea we, we should have had it yeah <laughs> we might steal it by the end of the day <laughs> um okay so um let's get started joy you were doing some work you were in a field before you were cooking, right? I was. So many chefs that we've talked to have had kind of like career changes and realized that their passion was cooking and they came back to it. But where did it start for you? Yeah, I'm always really jealous of the people who knew when they were in their teens and 20s that they wanted to do this for a living. I, I kind of think about where I would be now or where I would be differently if I had known earlier. But it is what it is. Um, I I moved to Los Angeles after I graduated from Penn State and my, my undergraduate degree was in English and I wanted to work with writers, um, not to write myself but to edit writers. So I worked at film and television studios, Warner Brothers uh, most notably uh, for several years and I worked, I was in a development and basically I worked with screen writers to take their scripts from first draft to production. And what does that mean? Does that mean you're editing? That means you're putting together the pieces so that the script can actually yeah, become a film? You're, you're helping them build the story, write, rewrite, and uh, make the changes in compliance with the studio to get the project from, hey, this is interesting, let's buy it, to, okay, we're ready to shoot. And you're in a place, L.A., where food and uh, chefs are celebrities, right? I mean, it's kind of like the original yeah. food capitals. And so did that factor into you getting involved in food? Very much so. I mean, um, the difference is stark between um, Pennsylvania and, and California in terms of um, definitive seasons in Pennsylvania and the way food grows and, and how I grew up eating. And then in, in Los Angeles um, in particular, but in, in California in general, the seasons are obviously completely different. Um, the climate is different. The food that we have available there is different. Proximity to, to Mexican food and, and that culture. And yeah, so I, I really, I think my, my food sense kind of came alive there 
I took what I uh, knew about what I what I grew up eating and kind of combined it with some um, some growing sensibilities about seasonality and about um, uh, fresh food and you know grilling and vegetables in the center and I think it really took hold and so I was able to combine those two um, ways of eating if you will and and that I feel like is where I I landed but you know even though you didn't start out as a chef you were just saying I wonder what would have what would have happened had right. I Clearly, your life experience has played into who you are. We were just talking about Flynn McGarry, who's been cooking since he was 11. Absolutely. But, you know, what you've done in Los Angeles and your whole upbringing, obviously, you know, plays into who you are today and, and your career, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm, I think it's the, I think it's commonplace. I think most uh, chefs, when you ask them what inspired them or where they, where their, their love started, it, it's always you know how you grew up or where you grew up or or who you grew up standing next to those those are the things that influence you and 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 kind of uh define your food sense and that's I'm no exception to that I, I the way that I grew up was really food and the work associated with food and and our families were um that's where we gathered uh, every day every day and then on the weekends in particular on Sundays it was very ceremonial the way we ate the way we prepared food and generationally what we'd passed down um and I think that is, uh, is a huge part of like kind of what cements me. And then I gravitated towards what I what I what I was doing when I woke up. I think when I started growing up, when I started making my own decisions about what to eat, how to cook, etc. And that was when I was in California. And just before I turn to Jeff, what was the first kind of pivot point for you from the 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 entertainment industry work to actually cooking? Uh, I was in a rare position of, I think, having um, the the personal finances and the time at the same time. I had um, I had a job that allowed me to have the bulk of my days free, and I had money in the bank. And so, going to culinary school at that point was like, yeah, why not? Okay, so that's what you decided to that's do. That's correct. While you were still working in the entertainment, while I field? was still working in the entertainment field, that's and right. someone had to push. Didn't someone have to encourage you to? Go to culinary school. Yeah, my, yeah. W- my best friend at the time, who actually is still my business partner to this day, Beth Black, she said, you should go to culinary school. And I was like, well, that's a cool idea. She's a good best friend. <laughs> she's the best. She's a good yeah, best friend. she's the best. Jeff Grass, everything I read about you describes you as a serial entrepreneur. And every time I see that label with somebody, it, it's always somebody who's been successful at like half a dozen things. <laughs> uh, I've never seen anybody who's been unsuccessful call themselves a serial entrepreneur. But food for you is the, is your, your fourth business, this hungry company. But you started really kind of, I guess, at the intersection of technology and business-to-business kind of services. I know you graduated from the Wharton School at Penn. How did you get into this work? Yeah, yeah. For me, um, it's been much more of a, a technology-centric entrepreneur than, than food. Each of the companies have been kind of business-to-business-to-consumer, hungry being the fourth company. So I haven't done six or more, but uh, four is a lot. But, but just four. And uh, I, my career started more traditionally. Um, I think I always had a very entrepreneurial sort of element to, to things that I was doing. Uh, it was really out of business school that I started my first company called PayMyBills.com in in LA, actually in Pasadena, nice. California. Yeah. And how did, and PayMyBills.com you started and end up selling, I'm assuming? Yeah, we did. It was myself and a co-founder. We started at Idealab, which is an internet incubator back in the late 1990s, early 2000s with Bill Gross and his team. And it's myself and, and a co- co-founder in the corner of the lab. And uh, over the course of a few years, we grew up to about 220 people, sold the business for about $67 million. And 
and took a year off and traveled around the world with some people that worked with me. Ooh, there's a whole <laughs> show right there. <laughs> yeah. Around the world. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so you, when you start a, and I want to come back to uh, Hungary in a moment, but when you start a, uh, a business, whether it's a restaurant, uh, whether it's a catering company, whether it's pay my bills, what's that feel like? Is it... Uh, like, what's the ratio of uh, doubt to confidence or <laughs> fear to uh, joy? I mean, it's kind of like fun to start your own thing and you're your own boss, but there's got to be some personal hurdles you have to come over to, you know, to get across that line. Everybody wants to be their own boss, to have their own business, but very few end up actually doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you, um, you know, there's probably a certain element of fear. I think in general, um, you know, it's probably more excitement, at least for me. It's, it's you know, getting passionate around an idea. Um, all of the companies that I founded have tried to um, been very much kind of purpose-driven companies with an idea of that can really hopefully change people's lives for the better. And, and so I'd say it's, it's more, you know, excitement about wanting to go do something that can, and, you know, create something new and, and hopefully it has a positive impact. Um, it's funny though, like even though you go in with you know extreme confidence, it's such a great idea. I think every single one of them didn't work out, and then the business kind of pivoted along the way, and you know, and ultimately found its its path as as, as you know as we got into market and learned more. Well, you know, military uh, generals always say that no battle plan survives its first contact with the enemy, <laughs> exactly. and I always feel like no business plan survives its first contact with the marketplace. That's you have to be agile true. and constantly changing. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, Joy, what what type of uh, skills or character traits or capabilities do you have to have to to start your own thing and succeed at it in well, addition to having a best friend sure like yeah to, to to start your own thing I mean for me it was um, I think my confidence and any bravery I might have felt was fueled by complete ignorance I had no idea what I was doing and so I didn't know uh, what to be afraid of or, or that I should be afraid or um, really anything I just sort of I think I thought what I assume many chefs think, which is, I can cook, and um, I'd love to cook for other people, so let's let's give this a shot. And then there's the whole business that takes place behind the um, the act of cooking, and I think that's where a lot of places don't don't survive because it's it's a grind, it's grueling, and it's um, subject to a lot of magic, which is not a, a, a great thing to build business on, but. Subject to a lot of magic, meaning? Meaning, I think that there's a lot of talented chefs out there, but not a lot of successful restaurants. Whatever makes a restaurant fail isn't always due to like a lack of talent in the kitchen or or a passion Usually for the chef. Usually not, exactly. Right. right, there's something else. That would lead me to believe that what makes it successful is not always uh, written down on paper either. There's there's definitely some emotion and some, some mojo in play. But uh, I think if I had known then what I knew now going into it I would have never gone into it so I'm grateful for the, um, for the sort of what, flying blind for a while and what do you know now that you didn't know then the probability of failure the expense associated with the endless work the turnover you know all the, all the things that make entrepreneurialism like not sexy uh, but it's also um, I don't know. It's just a, an addiction to driving your own kind of bus and taking it wherever you I mean, want it to go. Do you both find that you have to, because I think um, when I think about share strength, we're now over 30 years old and we have to constantly reinvent different things, you know, about our work that I think keep, 
keep us fueled? Do you feel that you have to, you've done four businesses, so obviously you feel like you have to keep reinventing, but even within your business, you know, whether it's new recipes or a new theme or something. Yeah, I think it's, um, even in one business, you need to be constantly sort of progressing it, evolving it, learning, you know, growing it. Um, so I, I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, or as probably anybody in business, um, you know, th there needs to be a constant level of growing and development that's happening. Um, and, and, you know, we focus a lot on our clients and how do we really, you know, understand what their needs are, how do we address them in better and better ways. Because it's very connected to the passion, mm -hmm. right? It's, in, unless you're feeling passionate at every step, Mm -hmm. things start to <laughs> slip. So it, it makes perfect sense that you have to you know, keep evolving. And I think the passion helps because um, it is a roller coaster, right? Like some Absolutely. days you're like on top of the world and feel like this is amazing. And other days you're like, oh, this is horrible. And right. <laughs> bad things are happening. Um, um, and, and so it's, you know, how do you moderate that and kind of keep things in perspective? Well, it's very while keep, fragile. While keep growing. Right? New ideas are really fragile, I think. N you know, big new ideas are fragile. They just need a lot of love and care and, you know, all of that. But the other thing um, that I think is necessary with to be successful is someone to back your idea, someone that you trust and you love and you've had co-founders and you have your best friend who is a business partner and I feel like that's another important piece is not to be alone with your idea, to have somebody mm -hmm. who says that you trust, like I love this and they can't guarantee success but they're, they're behind you. I remember there was it's something essential. we read that, um, a while ago, and I can't remember, it was a business book or something, maybe Harvard Business Review piece, and it was saying that, you know, a new idea is like a baby. It can't defend itself, right? It can't stand mm -hmm. up for itself. You have to you have to constantly be it there is. advocating for it because it's unprovable at first, right? It's You've got the vision of what it can be, well, yeah. but uh, you, you can't necessarily make anybody believe that. I mean, I have a whole thing about, I won't get into it now, but I have a whole thing about how innovation is very much like falling in love. There are a lot of properties that are exactly the same. The fragility of it, the intensity of it, the vision that you have, the internal drive, that you see something that nobody else sees. I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of connections around that, but it's similar Learning to what you're saying. Learning things about my sister that I never <laughs> You know I wrote a little piece on yes. love and innovation. Yeah, I anyway. I love it. There's oh. a lot there. I mean, there's so much there that, that you guys just um, kind of flew back and forth, but I, I think one of the things that is um, specific about our industry, um, the, the restaurant industry, is that it's fueled by young people. I mean, the influx, like in and out, in and out. And, and in order to be fueled by young people, you have to be relevant to them. Uh, you have to stay relevant. And that does require um, just constant uh, measuring of your business against what's going on now and seeing what you need to do, like you were saying earlier, to pivot, to, to change, to remain. Uh, it, it's like you there's there's value in, in being longstanding, mm -hmm. but you also have to stay well, current. Yeah, yes. yeah uh, or else you will become yeah. not interesting. That's right. Um, and it's not even the people that are coming in your doors, but the people that are working behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. If you're not interesting to them, if they don't buy into the culture that you're creating, um, as a business, then I think you struggle with maintaining the staff, and that I, I, we talk to I chefs mean, all the time. That's one of the number one issues: is maintaining 
maintaining staff that, that you know, kind of drinks your cooler. Yeah, it's a great point, Joy. You know, uh, Share Strength is 34 years old, and you're probably sitting there thinking, like, I, I don't want to do anything for 34 years. <laughs> That's like 10 lifetimes. But, um, you know, part of the reason that I think it's succeeded is, and certainly for Debian, I think I could speak for both of us. We've never had a year that felt like last year. It never felt like we're doing the same thing again that we did before. We're constantly reinventing, adding new programs, adding new platforms for um, finding ways that people can share their strength. And if you don't do that, I think it does get stale and you kind of lose your relevance. Uh, did anybody try, ever try to talk either of you out of what you were doing or starting? Was there a, a time where you sure, know, sure, yeah, most people do, um, and uh, especially like all of my businesses have been um, investor-backed businesses. So the process of raising money along the way is usually um, an interesting prospect because people are challenging your ideas or are, are um, you know, and you're trying to get them excited about what you're doing and help them understand the potential. And usually, you get a lot more no's than you get yeses, you know, along the way. So. And probably not immediately profitable, I assume. Or nope, nope. Like, yes. But um, haven't they learned by now that you're successful and that your next <laughs> idea should just be like automatically yes? <laughs> you should be, <laughs> you right? You think, right? right? <laughs> um, although raising money in something related to food is actually, I found, you know, more difficult than uh, than something difficult. uh and is just kind of pure tech. It's been it's been an interesting experience, but. Uh, but um, it does, does get easier. You it haven't does. failed at any of the. Have you um, had one that didn't make it? Uh, no, they're, they're, one is. Um, the two others are still operating. One is profitable, and one is kind of growing quickly. Um, so it definitely gets easier as you have more of a track record. I think the first time entrepreneur is has the hardest, you know, because you don't have something to show people. Uh, Joy, you've got two restaurants now. I do. Food. Foodie. Foodie. Yep. Uh, F O. O D E. That's it. Foodie. Yes. Uh, and mercantile. That's correct. Right. And you've got a brewery. Well, six bears and a goat. Yeah, I know. I saw. I looked across and I saw that written there. And uh, so six bears and a goat was a one-year uh, pop-up, oh, basically. Like a pop-up. Yeah, okay. we we partnered with a brewery who um, didn't have experience in running a restaurant. Didn't really want to focus on that. They wanted to focus on the beer that they were brewing. I think it was smart, and so they brought us on board for the first year to sort of get the groundwork laid and and get the processes in place uh and then then we handed the food service back to them um so they're a gr- they're a great brewery in um in fredericksburg and they make fantastic beer and they are now uh as of the end of last year they're now running their own food service so that was a that was a really cool uh different uh experiment are you are you a beer drinker uh, yeah, sure. I mean, their their beer is insanely good. It's very, very good. So want to try it? Yeah, whatever. I'll have a beer. Sure. So yeah. Where, yeah. Where's the name come from? Do you mean bourbon? <laughs> What's that? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got beer. <laughs> I wasn't sure what you meant. Yeah. Um, Are you a bourbon drink? I love bourbon. Well, me too. It really does. Yeah. Too. yeah. yeah. Okay. We're gonna I love to, beer. I wish I had turned some bourbon. Bourbon um, tattoos. I don't have any tattoos. Really. <laughs> <laughs> if you cycle with us, you've got one. <laughs> there you it's go. Kind of the thing. Oh, is that the thing? Yeah. And yeah. where did the name come from? Six bears and a goat. Six bears and a goat is um, is run by seven um, uh, retired. Uh, veterans, so uh, Coast Guard and uh, Navy. Got yeah, it, got and that's it, got their mascot. So, wow. yeah, okay. great name. Yeah, it is yeah. a cool name. Very Sticks cool name. Yeah, yeah, love it. Yeah. All right, so we've kind of talked about how you got to where you are, but we haven't talked about what you're actually doing now. So, the two restaurants, Foodie and Mercantile. Right. Uh, what are they like? Tell us what the experience is like. What are you hoping when a when a guest comes and goes? What are they feeling as they're walking out the door? And what are you proudest of at the restaurant? Um. I am proudest of at the restaurant that, um, well, I, I could tell you what we find, which is at both places, we focus so much on hospitality and the act of uh, 
sort of welcoming you into our fold. That's the feeling that we want people to remember. Um, we like when our staff remembers the names of the people that come in or what they do for a living or what their kid does. We, we, we encourage that dialogue. We encourage the personalities to exchange uh, between our staff and the guests that come in. And everything else swirls around it. You know, our locations change and our decor changes and our menus change and what I'm into from one day to the next. It's grains here, it's seafood there. We really focus on um, that that visit and what it feels like to sit down in the in the chair. What it feels like, that's the that's experience. the key yeah. piece. I'm just thinking of, um, you know, Danny Meyer's, you know, definition of hospitality, yeah. I mean, right? Yes, and, I mean, I read you know, it. how it makes you feel. I expect there to be more, but there, there, there isn't. You yeah. know, it's, yeah. just, it's just that, um, yeah. it's just that sort of, um, appreciation he always says it's that simple and it's that hard yeah right? just making sure you know how how you make people feel is really the takeaway absolutely yeah yeah Jeff tell us what hungry is doing I know it's been growing fast yep. right I've seen just incredible numbers in terms of its year-on-year uh, -year growth but how does it work what uh, you talked about purpose-driven businesses what's the purpose it's serving and uh, what's the size and scale of it so what we are is, is we're the first ever platform that connects companies with top chefs throughout a region to provide ultra reliable and super cost efficient you know, office food, office catering. So we're essentially, you know, think of like an Uber platform that creates this connectivity between great chefs in an area with companies um, that are looking for higher quality, healthier food than what they have access to today. Um, the core of the innovation is we're tapping into these great local chefs that are cooking primarily out of wholesale locations like incubator kitchens and other places so they can create high quality food but at a, at a much lower cost point than sourcing food out of a restaurant or a more traditional catering company. We focus heavily, kind of our core purpose is to make the lives every we touch better. And so we focus a lot on creating a very chef-centric, um, a very pro-chef platform. So it really gives you know, chefs an alternative career path or, or a secondary you know, source of income versus you know, going down the path of trying to you know, you know, work in a restaurant or, or ultimately you know, become a restaurateur. As you right. said, there's many great chefs that aspire to, to get to you know, uh, running a restaurant but don't necessarily have the skills to do that. So for chefs, we're kind of like business in a box. We do all the sales and marketing, the delivery, everything but you know, the cooking, if you will. For our clients, we focus a lot on the buyers of, of our clients. Um, how do we make their lives better? Um, increasingly, they are frustrated with you know, having to order food to the office more frequently. They're, they're challenged by Americans' diets that are getting way more difficult, a lot more food allergies and dietary restrictions. Um, how do we make it better for those that are eating the food? We focus on healthier menus, higher quality, um, and, uh, and then also save companies money, because typically we have kind of Panera, sub-Panera price points for, for food that's prepared by really, really high-end chefs. So it sounds like, I'm oh, sorry to interrupt you, it sounds like from what you're saying that everything you're doing should make it more expensive, right? It's healthier, it's more customized, if you've got a great chef behind it, it should make it more expensive than a than a conventional caterer. So, so we, you know, we don't make the food. So we don't actually own or operate any kitchens. So it makes it, you know, much more sort of capital light in the sense okay. of that. Um, we aren't employing chefs full time. Where sometimes they're busy, sometimes they're mm -hmm. not. So we only use them when we need them. Um, all of our, our our orders are advanced orders, and it's catering, so they're larger size orders. So um, typically, chefs are sourcing ingredients just for the order, so it kind of eliminates all the food waste out of the typical models. Um, so we try to just sort of strip cost after cost after cost out of the normal model, 
yet still use really good chefs. So we have James Beard chefs, we have former White House chefs, we have um, you know, chefs from different parts of the world. Um, uh, you know, um, up in Philadelphia, we've got Will Smith's personal chef here. We've got you know Pitbull's former personal chef. So you got all these chefs that have you know really really high you know, skills that are able to produce the food um, in a way though that, that takes a lot of the costs out of the normal model. And you're in two regions now: the we DC are, area and Philadelphia. Yeah, area. we're in Washington DC okay. and Philadelphia, and then we're looking to roll out in Atlanta in uh, in April. So the companies that that use the service. Mm -hmm. Could it be a one-off or is there a, a contract that you have with the company? Or nope, no contracts. Yeah, so it could be, we can we call you up at Share Strength and say... Yep. Yeah, our minimum order size is $200, so it's not for individual food orders, mm -hmm. but our average order size is usually around $600. We do all the food locally for Amazon now, for E-Trade, for Microsoft, um, all the WeWorks here use us. So um, it's something that um, is really great um, in, in terms of you know providing a better solution for each of those involved. We also try to, you're talking a little bit about the experience, we try to really elevate the food experience for those that are eating it. So we, we try to bring the chef's story into the office and we do that by really featuring the chef, with a big picture of the chef at every catering, you know, that the chef that made that day's meal tells their story. Um, so it really, you know, is exciting for people to know that, you know, we're having lunch from a chef that used to cook for President Obama in the White House. You know, tomorrow is the former executive chef from the Taj Mahal in India. You know, the next day is, and these are all chefs on our platform, so. But the um, chefs don't come into the office. No, the chefs don't. Okay. The chefs don't even know who they're cooking for, actually. So, but um, they get ratings and reviews after every catering. We collect feedback on how it went, and so the chef sees directly, you know, the client's perspective on it. So we're trying to really help the chefs, you know, build, build brand, build, build, build a following. Are they coming to you now? The chefs coming to you to say I'm part of this? We or? do. We've had you know hundreds and hundreds. We have over 700 chefs have applied. You're in that. Platform. Part of the business chefs. where they're now coming to you. And yeah, saying, it's really exciting. We have some chefs that are making twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month now on the platform. That's so, amazing. like you said, why didn't someone think of that first? It's really yeah. yeah. So Joy and Debbie and I want to think that this is more fun than the other three companies you started. Is, <laughs> yeah. it, is it true? It's definitely the most delicious. Yes, it's uh, the most delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, have you learned? Have you had to learn about a lot about food in addition to technology? Yes, I, mean, I, know you know, you're I, I can't side. say I'm. I, I was a food expert. You know, they've been doing this for two years. I think I've learned a lot. I joke that my first job was a, a chef for Kentucky Fried Chicken, but right. uh, um, <laughs> hardly a chef and hardly knew what I was doing. But uh, in some ways, I think it's been helpful. You know, not having you know, kind of grown up in the food industry, it allows us to think differently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the traditional model for restaurants or catering companies is you have one executive chef, or our model is, is you know, not one chef big menu, but lots of chefs, all with more limited menus. And uh, so kind of flip it on its head, you know, think of it differently. And what that allows us to do is solve the challenges for, you know, the admins and the office managers that are trying to bring food in all the time. Um, and, are, and are challenged by constantly trying to figure out what's the next restaurant to order from. Or, um, so it's interesting. It's a huge, huge industry, catering, um, office catering, that is served by restaurants and catering companies, which were generally never designed to serve that market. You know, restaurants are optimized around the mm. in-dining in experience. You know, most traditional catering companies are focused more on higher-end events and are kind of expensive places to, to make food. So, so really trying to create, you know, a model that is very much focused on just, you know, office catering and doing it really, really well. You're the only one out there doing this? The only one that's doing it like this. So With there's, chefs. There's, yeah. And, and do you have a, a criteria for, you know, how would you describe? Like, chefs? Yeah, what, what are the five things you look for, the three things? And Because I would imagine that not everybody would qualify. No, we put our chefs through a, a pretty rigorous screening <laughs> process. They all have to be professional chefs um, with a certain amount of experience or a degree from a, a, a accredited culinary institute. They have to cook out of a licensed commercial kitchen. Um, you know, certain things that are required. But uh, 
Um, we also do food tasting, so anything that's, that's sold through the Hungry Marketplace is, is first, you know, tried and, and tasted and vetted to make sure it's really good. And, so. and you're doing some charitable work as part of that. We are. We right. have a, yeah, we, we're, we very much believe in also giving back to local community. So for every two meals that are ordered through Hungary, uh, a meal is provided to help fight hunger in the local communities we serve. So in D.C. and Philadelphia. Working so. with a local food bank or an yeah, uh, anti-hunger with, organization. Uh, uh, um, uh, AFAC, Arlington Food Assistance Center, mm-hmm. um, and, and then also a little bit with Feeding America. Yep. So we provided, um, through the end of last year, 165,000 meals now. That's okay. amazing. That's kind great. Of cool. Joy, I want to talk a little bit about the what you were talking about a moment ago in terms of your guest experience because it seems like you have to not only be a cook but a culture builder and I'm curious how you train your team to not only cook well but to be kind and to be hospitable and to have that empathy and that sense of what's going to make this experience right for your guest Um, how much is that something you have to put a lot of energy into um I think that um, my business partner, Beth, I, I kind of learn a lot by osmosis just by sitting next to her. And one of the things that she believes in is you, you sort of hire the individual and then you figure out later where to put them. Um, it, hire for culture, train for skill. Ex- exactly. Or hire so, for, yeah. Yeah, so we, we may bring someone on board as a, as a food runner or as a bartender and within six months realize that they would make an excellent dining room manager because of the traits that we look for in a dining room manager rather than just kind of throwing that out there on, you know, Craigslist or whatever, you know, to, to see if we can find a dining room manager. So we really hire um, based on the individual character traits. So that, that part of the job is done. I mean, we don't hire um, knuckleheads. You know, we don't hire people that aren't kind. We don't hi- at all, ever. If we sense that they are, uh, we, you know, we have a little 90-day policy you're out of here. Mm-hmm. If we sense that you're not uh, that you're not kind or that you're not um, as concerned about the guest experience as you are with whatever your career advancement, the salary you're making, the hours that you have, if if those things don't weigh as much as the guest experience, we can tell that pretty quickly, um, if not in the interview, but then quick, pretty quickly after we hire and then we don't we don't welcome. And this is you and Beth making a judgment about them as opposed to like having a formula or a, I don't know what, a, you know, kind of a checklist. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's very subjective. It's, it's, it is a judgment call, but I think it's, I think the formula is we've been doing it for, you know, nine years and we've had so many people Uh, roll through and we've seen, we've seen so much. I mean, they get us sometimes, sometimes you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) you got in under the wire, man, you're not not cool at all. Um, You're a knucklehead. (laughs) You're out of here. You are not kind. No knuckleheads. But but really, you can forgive. It's like I was saying, it's like anything that doesn't hit the mark, even if they're not the best whatever food runner in the world, but they're super kind, chances are they're going to survive there for a little longer so we can try and work with them than they might if they were. uh, You can't be both, right? You can't be unskilled and mean. Um, So glad that I caught your... um your TED Talk and um, wanted to ask you a little bit about it because I thought it was really compelling when you were just kind of um, talking about, you know, this incredible upbringing you had, right? This warm and loving upbringing, but you were struggling with the just with, with how to bring love into the, into your business. And then you just, I won't give away the punchline, but you discovered something that enabled you to manage better. So what was that? Um, that, loving is management and that kindness is part of what can give you structure and discipline that people respond to that uh we've always believed that 
you can taste whatever emotion you're putting in the food, positive or negative. You can taste the love. So we sort of insist that when you when you walk in the door, whatever's going on with you outside of work, you got to figure out how to get it in check so that when you walk in the door, you walk in, you feel positive so that that, that stuff goes to your to your food. I mean, it sounds a little um, it sounds a little like touchy feely, but it's also if you cook a mood, a, a, a meal in a bad mood, it, it, it doesn't look nice. It doesn't look nice. It doesn't taste great. It makes shortcuts. Who gives a shit if the carrots are burned? You just, you know, that's what your outlook is. But mm-hmm. if you, if you come in and you're feeling positive, um, I think that expresses itself in in the food and on the plate. And that's what we try to, um, that's what we try to put forth with our staff. And so, what I have learned over the past couple of years is how to balance. Um, this necessity that I believe in having love as part of the workplace, how to balance that with clear rules um, and disciplinary consequences mm-hmm. when um, things out of whack. And it, it's hard for me. It doesn't come easily for me. I don't know whether, it, as I was saying, I don't know whether it's a female trait. I don't know whether it's mostly a joy trait. It's just, uh, it's not easy. Uh, so I work at it a lot to be clear. To, to focus on what I need, to, to, to have um, my expectations be very transparent so that people know whether they're meeting them or they're not, and then I don't feel so badly when I nobody say. Nobody should be surprised, right? right. They should know. Gotta go. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah. Uh, Gary Mulhair, who used to be a colleague of ours at our subsidiary uh, consulting firm at Community Wealth Partners, he always had this access, and it was, uh, you know, shares our values, doesn't share our values on one line, and uh, makes their numbers doesn't make their numbers. Right, and right. If, if somebody you know doesn't make their numbers and doesn't share your values, that's easy. They're they're out. Yeah. If they make their numbers and they share your values, that's easy. That, that's exactly what you want. Uh, the challenge is when they're making their numbers but they don't share your values, yeah, and yeah, and that's, that's just funny. that creates a dissonance. And you know, or the other way around. We've always decided we have people that you know share do share our values, but don't make their numbers and that's hard because but they're usually worth investing in right right but it it just on the extreme you know both of those extremes i think present themselves in any in any workspace um yeah some of them are easy decisions and others are i mean we have we have core values we have you know a set of core values but to me those values and i think about them all the time Mm -hmm. um i think about them with every new idea because if they don't hit those values for us, it's probably not. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't work somewhere else. Yeah. Right. But our culture is so strong, and those values, I think, drive our business. Not just our staff, but drive business ideas, drive strategy. They really drive the direction of the organization, and that, that's the way I think of them. Yes. So, Jeff, when you talk about purpose-driven business, um, I'd love to kind of press in on that a little bit, because um, m- most people who start a business would say, well. We have a purpose. We're going to sell this, and we're people need it, money. or whatever, <laughs> uh, or we're going to make money. But I, you know, when you talk about it, I sense you mean it more in in terms of a social purpose. Uh, so when you say purpose-driven business, is that something that you have to evangelize, or it's just built in? It's certainly something we talk a lot about, and, and it primarily manifests itself again in how do we make the lives of everybody we touch better. And so whether that's our client, whether it's the community we we operate in, the chefs that we that work on our platform. Um, and we use that as really our guide to make sure like anything we do has to be better for everybody. It can't be like it's good for these folks, but it's bad for the chefs or, or vice versa. So I think that helps guide us. Um, you, know, you guys are talking about hiring and, and, we, and, and, and how you kind of build culture. 
we have um, seven core values that we talk a lot about. Like I could probably name a few. If, I don't know if you guys define your core values, but just yeah. from the way you described it, you know, some of what your core values are. It came through very strong. It was great. We have um, every month uh, an Always Hungry Award where we, um, we, we talk about at least one member of the team that has really exemplified you know, one or more of those core values and, and really talk about you know, how important they are as a, as a reminder of, of what they are and, and they help guide us. So I'd say you know, the values and purpose is what you know, I, I think helps create you know, a foundation for a good culture. And then we focus a lot on our people and how to develop them and, and other things. But uh, we also, from a, if you're curious, our screening, um, I'd say generally we look for four core things, which is skill, will, fit, and intellectual curiosity. So for me, those are like the four things that I'm looking at, um, with skill probably being the least important. So again, you know, do they have you know, will, like a, a level of, of, of hustle and, 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 and drive? Um, fit, are they going to be a good fit for our culture? intellectual curiosity, like do they care to learn and want to develop and stuff. So those are the things that we look at and, uh, and very much screen against those. You know, and the, sh the shorthand for that is no knuckleheads. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Joy, I want to um, read something that you, I saw in an interview, um, I think in Edible okay. DC, um, but it really captures for me, I think, uh, why so many people listen to Add Passion and Stir and what they're looking for. You said, in my heart, I was meant to cook. Cooking brought me incredible joy, and I thought work was work. I didn't know that you could do things that brought you incredible joy. It didn't occur to me until I met Beth, your partner, Beth Black, who we mentioned, uh, that I could marry what I loved to do with my work. She said that you could go to culinary school, and it was the aha moment. I could go to culinary school. I had an early morning job, so I could do both, and that is exactly what I did. And I like that because I feel like there's so many, uh, particularly young people today, who feel like there's kind of a fork in the road and they have to make this choice. I can do work that you know totally fulfills my soul and connects me to my community and um, and achieves my passions, or I can make a living. And if or, or if I'm successful enough and make a living, then maybe I can do the former. I can go back and do what you know really nurtures my soul. But I think you're saying they're not mutually exclusive, right? It doesn't have to be either or. I mean, I, I for one come from a family of, of a lot of hard workers, and, and my, my parents worked very hard. Um, my, my dad worked for the same company for IBM for over 25 years. And, and so we sort of, I don't even know whether they knew that they were teaching us, but you, this thing, but they, they were teaching you, they were teaching us like, you, you pick something, you focus on it, you do your best, and you'll succeed in that, and that, that will be your life work. Um, and my sister, you know, sort of followed that path and worked for a big company, Hallmark, for years. And my brother uh, is is in technology, and he's worked for that for decades. And and they're they're building on a thing. And then what we did in our spare time was what we did in our spare time, and what brought us joy, you know, was was something else. And so it's nice to make the choice to go. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and focus on. The thing that brings me joy, but I think my, I think a good choice I made was teaming up with someone who understands the business part of it and can make those decisions um, in a way that's a little bit easier than I could. So it wasn't just my passion and just like oh, I'm going to pursue my passion. Mm -hmm. I, I pursued my passion, I think, with a bit of um, thoughtfulness and precision mm -hmm. by teaming up with someone who was business uh, minded, and then those two things together. I think have created um, a, a company or a collection of companies that that definitely values um, 
your dreams and your passion and what fuels you um, as highly as it values our margins and making that that make sense, you know? Yeah, well, you know, as you know, there are so many people who um, wait till their 50s or 60s or 70s till they get to the point where they feel like, they can do what you're talking about, or they get to their fifth there. They've always wanted to do it, and um, now they've got a mortgage and they've got three kids, and they can't do it. And you know, my advice uh, always to uh, young people, if I get the opportunity, is uh, don't wait. You know, don't right. don't wait till the mortgage is paid off. Don't wait till it stops raining. Don't wait till whatever <laughs> yeah. the excuse is. Don't wait. If it's something you love, make a yeah. you know, try to make a straight line yeah. uh, towards it. We're running out of time here, but let's talk about what comes next. Uh, for each of you, two restaurants, mm-hmm. Foodie and Mercantile, mm-hmm. for you both in Fredericksburg, uh, Virginia. Uh, I imagine that's kind of keeping your hands full and you've got a pretty full plate. Uh, what are you thinking about for the future? I think what is awesome for me is is how much I'm learning about the business of being in business, how that's as just as exciting to me as cooking right, right now. I love... Uh, the 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 challenges of of running a business and and all those things and so i've been thinking for quite some time now what what will i do next how will i transition and still stay fulfilled even if i'm not like in the grind of cooking every day and i think it is um making these businesses sort of as profitable as i can and as stable as i can for the people that work for for us and it's it's really nice every time we hire somebody else we put a little you know put a little mark on the wall and we see how many, how many marks mm-hmm, we have, and mm-hmm. we feel like, I don't know, we just kind of feel like that matters. And, and so what's next is trying to make these businesses as stable as possible so we can keep putting the hash marks on the wall for people that we can hire and have a, that have a place to go every day for, you know, to make a good living. Uh, and Jeff, in terms of what's next for you, there, I'm, I, I imagine there's a big map somewhere in your mind of all these other <laughs> the communities city. where where this could be. You could be taking hungry. Yes, yeah, so I guess we're very predictable. Um, so it's it's um, it's very much focusing on growing in the markets that we're in in, in D.C. and in Philadelphia. And um, the plan this year is to roll out in five new cities um, over the course of this year. So really, we're, uh, okay. So we're uh, closing on the around move. the financing right, funding right now that'll help us kind of you know, make that happen. Uh, congratulations to both of you on the incredible success. It's just really a, a treat to have you on Add Thank Passion you. and Stir. Joy Crump, uh, we've got to find a way, Debbie, to get to Joy's restaurant. We're going. Um, mm-hmm. we've, we've got to do that. I can't wait. So. <laughs> no, we have to. Uh, and, and, uh, and what reason do we have for not having Jeff Grass and Hungry Cater? Uh, you know, we have events at no Sheriff's Train at our office all the time. Yep, so we've got to do that. We'll but definitely Jeff, stay. We'll stay connected on that. That'd be great. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I hope you'll go to our website at Add Passion and Stir and look for other episodes. Rate us and rank us and subscribe. We uh, value our listeners' comments. I'm here with, in addition to uh, Jeff Grass and Joy Crump, my sister Debbie Shore. Thanks to our producer, Paul Woodle, also known as Woody, and Debbie Shore and the entire team at Share Our Strength for making this possible. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.